Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling Podcast. For countless parents, the journey to unschooling has redefined childhood and transformed their family relationships. Are you curious? Together, let's explore what living and learning looks like without school. Hello, explorers. I'm Pamela Riccia, and this is episode number 227 of the podcast. It's the 12th of May, 2020, as I record this intro. And this week on the podcast, I'm sharing part two of the audiobook recording of my book, Free to Learn, Five Ideas for a Joyful Unschooling Life. As I mentioned last week, if you haven't read it yet, this is an opportunity to learn more about the paradigm-changing ideas that I found to be truly fundamental on my unschooling journey. And if you have read it, I think it'll still be wonderful to revisit. You're in a different place on your unschooling journey now. You've peeled back some layers and have fresh eyes and new experiences to bring to it. New things will likely jump out and connect for you. Things that maybe passed by unnoticed before. And have you had a peek at the cover? Just thought I'd mention that it's a photo of my son Michael taken by my daughter Lissy in a field down the road from our place. Once I had decided on the book title and it was time to think about the cover, I went looking through our pictures for an image that I felt represented the ideas of both free and joyful, and this one jumped out immediately. I'm so grateful that they both agreed to let me use it. As a personal update, last week I mentioned that we were just coming out of a bit of a cold snap. Well, looking back, that was mostly wishful thinking. We were having one of those warmish days, you know, the ones tossed in there to keep us hopeful. (laughs) It's been snowing on and off for at least three days of the past week in May. (laughs) One morning, we even woke up to a few inches. We consoled ourselves by making a point to appreciate how truly beautiful it looked and reminding ourselves that it would melt quickly. (laughs) I did have to clean off my car, though. The spring peepers are so confused but it hasn't stopped the bunnies or the wild turkeys from wandering around our property. So that's always fun too. And before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who has chosen to support the podcast through Patreon. And a big welcome to new patrons, Christina Rabain, Daran Theobald, and Heather. Hi, Christina. Hi, Daran. Or is that Daran? Sorry. And hi, Heather. (laughs) I deeply appreciate all my patrons. Your generous support not only lets me know that you enjoy the show and want it to continue, it allows me to spend time creating episodes each week and to keep the podcast archive freely available to anyone who's curious and wants to explore the fascinating world of unschooling. If you'd like to join my community of patrons and scoop up some great rewards along the way, check out the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash exploring and schooling. And now let's listen in to part two of my book, Free to Learn. Idea two, following their interests. Unschooling paradigm, learning is everywhere. Mainstream paradigm, educational experts should define what and how children learn. Paradigm shift. Learning need not be defined as exclusively occurring in classrooms, during school hours, with those of school age. It can be found everywhere, at any time, and can happen at any age. 
We've talked about how you do not need a curriculum to lay out what needs to be learned before you can live successfully in the real world, and instead how children can learn what they need to by living in the real world. People, and again, children are people, enjoy learning things that are useful to them now, and they learn best when they are interested and engaged. Where is learning found? Glancing at your watch, you wonder where the afternoon has gone. You have a load of laundry to wash and dinner to get started soon. A bit ahead of you on the trail, George brings you out of your thoughts. Mom, come see the marks on this tree. You quickly catch up and lean over to look at the trunk. I think those were made by a beaver. Really? What was it trying to do? You answer matter-of-factly. It was trying to cut down the tree and use it to build its home in the river. So cool, let's go to the river and look for them. Straightening up, you turn toward the parking lot. You can see the excitement in his eyes, but you're tired and want to get home and get dinner on the table. Not today, George. Maybe next time. So, if we don't follow a curriculum, where is learning found? We find it in the living, in the world. Let's look at that in more detail. Schools realize they are preparing their students for the magical day they graduate into the mysterious real world. They try to replicate it with play food and play money and play stock markets, with pictures of real places and simplified science experiments. Then there are the word problems that try to simulate real-life scenarios. Your mother gives you $5 and the toy you want to buy costs $12.50. And some that aren't so relevant. If train A leaves the station traveling east at a speed of X and train B is traveling west, they try to push this knowledge into the learner in hopes that it is absorbed and understood well enough for the student to apply it in the real world once they graduate. Mainstream educators also realize that more learning happens when the child is happily engaged. One outcome is the recent rise in edutainment software, a mixture of educational and entertainment genres. Edutainment software is often more fun than a worksheet, but the concepts used in the games are still removed from life and are now superficially embedded in a storyline. The student is still left to figure out how shooting a balloon with a 12 on it when he sees 3 times 4 written on the billboard in the desert applies in the real world. It still focuses on teaching the skill versus its real-life connection. Instead, how about needing to move 12 spaces after rolling double sixes in Monopoly? The player soon discovers that moving two spaces six times or three spaces four times makes the counting and the game go faster. Or noticing that to quickly choose a dozen muffins at the local bakery, it helps to ask for three of each of your four favorite varieties. Or observing that when you receive six status upgrades in your video game after a boss fight, that with three team members, you can award them equally by giving every member two upgrades. These are real-life situations where multiplication is a useful tool, and therefore the knowledge is understood and remembered. In school, the focus is on learning the skills. Learning to read is in itself a goal. Learning the multiplication tables, learning the capital cities. But stuck within the confines of the school's four walls, kids find it hard to understand why they might want to learn many of these things. 
those subjects are disconnected from their life. And without the connection to real-life goals, learning these skills is all the more difficult. They need something to connect it to, some way for it to make sense in their world, and with that, gain understanding and real learning. For example, at our house, learning to read is not a goal. But as my daughter immersed herself in the world of Harry Potter, she learned a lot about reading along the way. We don't have learning percentages as a goal. But as my son worked to create a well-rounded party that could defeat the final boss in his video game, an understanding of percentages and data management was pretty crucial. This learning is really incidental to the goal. Just stepping stones, something to figure out along the way. But it is real learning. It makes sense in their world and has purpose. And they truly enjoy it because it helps them accomplish their goal. Learning is fun. Those are a couple of real-life examples. But do you wonder how your child will encounter the need or wish to learn a wide range of things in their day-to-day lives? Think about that. What if your child just lives in the real world with you instead of learning from simulated life in school? Think of all the real and meaningful learning she would experience. What if she goes grocery shopping with you and checks out the real produce for sale that day? Comparison shops between brands. What if she has $5 allowance in her pocket and she wants a toy that costs more? You could discuss with her how much more she would need to save to afford it or how she could borrow from you. That's real life and learning. Maybe later you drive to the local park and play around by the river. You watch the water flow and the fish rest in the twists and turns of the river and you consider the design of a beaver dam. Maybe she's a bit older and searching YouTube, she finds some great videos on playing guitar. Maybe she records an interesting Discovery Channel series on the 100 greatest discoveries in science. And while browsing through the local library, she finds a book series that delights her. Maybe she enjoys a series of art classes put on by a local artist. At this time in history, there is so much information readily available in the world. It is no longer only available in the classroom dispensed by a teacher. Another interesting thing to note is how different learning looks outside of school. The plodding and relentless nature of curriculum makes learning appear to happen steadily. Chapter one this week, chapter two the next. But real learning often happens in a seemingly erratic pattern of fits and starts. Progress seems stymied for a while, Then a stubborn connection is finally made, cascading rapidly through any number of quick learning connections until another challenging question comes into focus and slows us down again for a while. Real learning is not as systematic as a curriculum outline would have us believe. Do you wonder about more advanced topics as your child gets older? There are a couple considerations here. First, older children are likely adept now at finding and learning information they are interested in pursuing. They are also more likely to feel comfortable exploring new environments related to their areas of interests, such as the local photography club or rocket building group, where they'll find more experienced people who love to share their knowledge and enthusiasm. Maybe they'll find a mentor to help them delve even deeper into their passion. I recently received an email asking about the future of my son Joseph and his interest in video games. 
This question touches a common concern that people have when they are first learning about unschooling. I am curious, is he planning on going to college? Game development degrees require math courses such as Calculus 2 and 3. As an unschooled student, won't he be at a major disadvantage in college when he needs to take these advanced courses? The specific answer for my son at the moment is that he is interested in the story aspect of game development, not programming. But this doesn't really address the underlying unschooling idea that learning can happen whenever there is an interest, so I answered more fully. Even if he were interested in programming, we still wouldn't consider him to be at a major disadvantage. There are many ways to get into the gaming industry without college, but if he were to choose college, catching up with the math curriculum would not likely be the overwhelming ordeal it may sound like. Even though he hasn't taken formal math classes since he left school, he has definitely encountered math concepts. And with a lifelong view of learning, we don't look at starting at the beginning to learn something new as a disadvantage, but as a choice. He could work through some math books on his own, take a summer class, or a remedial course in college. The time others have spent learning what they know, say a high school math curriculum, he spent learning something else that makes up his knowledge base. It's not a competition with others, and time is not lost, just used at his preference. Those are two important concepts to internalize. There is no right and wrong time to learn something when learning is seen as a lifelong endeavor. Learn it when you want or need the knowledge. And there is no behind or ahead in learning. Comparing marks or knowledge against others is not a measure of personal learning and is irrelevant to the learner if the goal is expanding their own knowledge base. Now let's shift. Do you value one kind of learning over another? Do you think reading about something is superior to watching a TV show about it? Is visiting an exhibition on the topic better than reading about it? How about participating in a group interested in the same topic? Why? Let's say the topic of interest is medieval times. You could visit the library and pick up some books, ranging from picture books to history texts. You could search through upcoming listings on satellite or cable to see if anything related is coming up. You could search DVD series for documentaries or movies depicting that time period. You could visit the local museum for exhibits or plan a fun weekend into the nearest city with an extensive display. In the summer, you could dress up in period costume and visit a renaissance fair to dive more deeply into that world. There are so many possibilities. Bits and pieces of medieval times knowledge can be had from all of these sources and more. If your child is not interested in reading the books you found, but can't get enough of the documentaries, are they still learning interesting things about medieval times? Yes. What if they love the books in the museum, but don't want to dress up or visit the local fair? What if they really just want to fashion their own lance and run around jousting with friends? Still learning? Absolutely. What your child is drawn to pursuing and learning is what is making meaningful connection for them at this time. And this is real learning, knowledge that is understood and remembered. The stuff they choose to forego, maybe it was the presentation style, maybe it was the content, it doesn't matter. 
What they pass up now, your child may be drawn to later, a week from now or five years from now, or maybe never if it doesn't again cross their radar or pique their interest. Learning is found everywhere, and all types of learning are of value to the learner. Connections are made regardless of how they are sparked or the vehicle through which they are delivered. Now, let's look at how these connections work. Connections create the web of learning. Isabella loves her birthday. She's thrilled to be making her list with you. I want a princess dress and a wand and a princess storybook and a frog puppet. Oh, and a tea set and a toy castle and a princess coloring book. I love the new princess movie and a prince charming doll. You laugh. Is there anything that you'd like for your birthday that isn't princess related? Connections are the thrill of learning. They are how we build our own view of the world. How do those learning connections weave together? Let's take a couple examples and see where they could lead. A classic example for us is The Simpsons TV show. Many parents are wary of letting their children watch since the attitudes to adults seem quite disrespectful. But there is so much there to spark conversations and learning. When my children were younger, it was the plot that they enjoyed most. I recall watching with my kids an episode that parodied Hamlet. Soon after, we were watching the Reduced Shakespeare Company's DVD, The Complete Works of William Shakespeare Abridged, and when they were doing their version of Hamlet, the kids were busy relating it to the Simpsons version, Tales from the Public Domain. One of the Trios of Horror episodes included a skit based on Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. My daughter found this fascinating, and the next week she bought a book collection of some of Poe's work and eagerly read through it. As they got older, they began to catch more of the underlying social commentary, sparking more discussions from the portrayal of girls in media, to the meaning of Christmas, to taking care of our parents as they age. The show is a smorgasbord of life topics, and we enjoy it together. For others, their interest in The Simpsons could lead to an interest in animation or drawing or comedy. For some, it has led to writing about the philosophical questions raised in the show. Any interest has the potential to expand in many directions, which is what makes the web metaphor so apt. Another example of learning connections is my younger son's karate. Michael started with one class a week, but as his interest solidified, he chose more and more classes, currently up to four nights a week. Japanese is often used at the dojo for counting, for naming the different moves, and that has sparked an interest in learning more Japanese. He has delved into websites and has bought a Nintendo DS game about learning the language. He has explored different types of physical training to increase his strength and endurance, and he attends additional workshops to further his skills. Michael's interest in karate has also led to an interest in learning how to eat in a more healthy way. It's not just karate, and it's not just about physical activity either. Being out in the world doing things they are interested in, along with the freedom to pursue any related threads they discover, creates an environment in which real learning thrives. It is exciting and fun. Think about this in relation to your own learning. What was the last thing you learned outside school? What interest have you pursued with gusto? 
Did you find yourself following interesting tangents as you explored the topic? It's likely you did. When you were surfing for information on the internet, did you find an interesting website or blog and then follow an intriguing link to another blog and then maybe another and another, learning all sorts of bits and pieces along the way? It's not a coincidence that they call it the World Wide Web. Just as the internet is a web of virtual connections, links, and search results, our personal learning is a web of connections in our mind. As you move toward unschooling and observe your child making these connections, as you see their connected view and understanding of the world growing, you begin to trust that learning is still happening, even if you sometimes don't explicitly see or understand the connections your child is making. At this point, I hope you're starting to get comfortable with the idea that learning is everywhere, that bringing your child into contact with the world versus trying to bring some semblance of the world into the classroom, helps build meaningful connections. Exploring together will support your child's real learning. But what if your child is not particularly interested in getting out in the world and exploring all sorts of different things? What if right now they have one interest, a passionate interest, that they prefer to explore to the exclusion of others? Does this hinder unschooling? How will they learn the various skills and basic information that will help them live in the world as they grow older with such a seemingly narrow focus? Let's investigate these questions by looking deeper at some real-life examples. Embracing Passions Mom, this figure would be perfect standing by the tracks in my town. Can we get it, please? You smile grimly. You'd tried walking quickly past the store display, knowing Christopher would ask for yet another accessory if he noticed the toys. Not today, Christopher. All you do is play with your trains. Don't you get bored? Why don't we play catch outside when we get home? Christopher is disappointed, but not surprised. He knows you don't much approve of his love of trains. It may seem counterintuitive at first, but even focused interests open up the world for exploration. I saw it in action in my own family. When my two eldest children were younger, they both dove deeply into ostensibly singular interests. Instead of trying to coax them out of their realms in hopes of them being well-rounded, I joined them to discover the joy they were experiencing. Why weren't they getting bored? How involved could playing video games really be? Sure, the Harry Potter books were great, but what more could there be to enjoy after reading them a few times? After a while, I was astonished to discover the incredible breadth of learning I found. I was inspired to draw up a connections map or web for each of their passions that laid out the learning connections I'd seen in those few months. Lissy's Harry Potter exploration included threads weaving into reading, writing, research, crafts, religion, mythology, computers, movies, and music, while Joseph's video game explorations wove their way into math, reading, writing, mythology, Japanese language, game development, and social and personal development. There were probably more that I didn't catch, but this was enough to convince me that even diving deep into a singular passion allowed incredible access to the world. 
It's important to give your child the freedom to explore the threads they discover as they dig into their passion. When talking with them, it may seem to be video games or Harry Potter or trains or the Simpsons or space or dinosaurs all the time. But through that filter, they are picking up many new skills, making all sorts of interesting connections that are understood and remembered. And these are skills and connections that can be called upon in new situations. You can help these connections grow by sharing their enthusiasm and bringing related things into their world for them to discover. Being involved with them as they explore means you will see the web of connections growing, see real learning happening. If worry that they seem so focused causes you to interfere with their exploration by pushing them to pursue other topics, your actions may well have the opposite effect. They will probably spend their required time at those other activities, wishing instead that they were busy with their passion. Not only are they not learning much from the new activity because they are unhappy and distracted, the time that they would have spent learning more widely through their passion is lost. Looking back now, I think my children's passionate explorations of their interests led them far and wide precisely because they were young and there was so much new and interesting stuff in the world for them to learn. That's in stark contrast to their few years in school where rote learning was disconnected from their interests and, as a result, was quite boring and arduous. This learning was exciting. Joseph's and Lissy's exploration of their passions touched many of the basic skills, reading, writing, math, web skills, and so on, that now helped them live so comfortably in the real world day to day. Interestingly, delving into their passions now is much more pointed, much more about depth than breadth. There is less of a need to cast the net wider because they already possess the basic skills and knowledge in those general areas. Lissy's current interest in photography is deep and wide, but at this time is mostly contained within the artistic realm rather than the technical or business sides. She often spends hours each day deep in the work of creating and editing images or poring over photos in magazines or surfing the web for information and inspiration. Sure, if she hadn't already learned the basics about computers, she'd be picking them up now as part of learning image manipulation software. Or if she wasn't already web savvy, she would be well on her way through using photo sharing websites. Or if she wasn't already sporting good web research skills, she'd be honing them now as she combs the web for photography information. Or if she hadn't already delved deep into writing as part of her Harry Potter exploration, she'd be developing fine writing skills now through communicating with other photographers. This pattern of real learning, of reaching out to gather skills when needed, is not age-based as so many of us have discovered outside the age-dominant regime of school. The process of real learning is individual and based on each child's unique personality and internal readiness. No one skill or personality is necessary or even advantageous for living and learning in the world, even reading. Every child's unique combination of personality and skills means that how they learn will also be unique to them. Some children are capable of reading at a young age and some not until much later, 
But that doesn't slow them down outside the classroom because information in the real world comes in so many shapes and sizes. Some children love spending time in big groups of kids, others in small groups, still others with just their family or mostly on their own. Some will explore the world through their most passionate interest. Others will discover its joys through various ongoing hobbies. But one thing is certain. Free to learn, children in all these overlapping groups will gather knowledge and pick up skills in ways that work for them. They may prefer to learn through books or magazines, read by themselves or by others, TV movies or documentaries, mentors or interested peers, hands-on exploration, online websites, blogs and podcasts, visits to related places close or far, and so forth. No one method of learning is superior to another except to an individual. Truly, learning is everywhere. So, now you're getting comfortable with the idea that learning can happen by living and that following their interests will lead them to that learning. Next, how can we support our children as they explore the world? Idea three, choices. Unschooling paradigm, choices are key to learning. Mainstream paradigm, parents who make most of the decisions for their child are modeling the right thing to do so that their children will remember and make those same choices as a young adult and beyond. Paradigm shift, instead of learning what choices to make, It's better to learn how to make informed choices. Unschooling children are picking up skills and gathering information all the time, but at the same time, they are learning how to navigate the world. How to make choices and decisions in both unique and everyday situations is a key life skill. How do we help them gain experience with this? Judging choices. It's a beautiful fall day and you are looking forward to going for a walk. Jeremy quickly pulls on his running shoes, dashes out the door, and shouts, Come on, Mom! Your smile falters as you notice his sweater still hanging on the hook, remembering the talk you gave him just yesterday about wearing it when he goes out in this cooler weather. As you walk through the door, you say firmly, Jeremy, get back here and put on your sweater. A beat passes, and you add, Now! Running back, he protests that he's not cold, but you insist. He does as he's told, but his excitement has waned and the joyful stroll you envisioned has morphed into a determined march around the block, accompanied by repeated moans about the sweater, and you both head back inside. You may think your child needs to wear a sweater out for a walk on this fall day, but only the child can really tell whether he'll feel best with or without it. He may well be warm enough without it because he's running ahead and back, or his body temperature naturally runs higher than yours right now. Absolutely offer a sweater if you think it seems cool out, but there's no need to insist. Bring it along if you think he might change his mind. With the choice of a sweater available, he may decide to wear it after being outside for a while. Or not. But he will have added a bit of real experience that will factor in the next time he finds himself in similar circumstances. He's learning how to analyze situations and make choices. One of the basic skills for anyone exploring the world and learning through living is making choices. What do I want to do today? Should I sign up for that interesting sounding workshop? Do I want to take a bath or a shower? Eat a sandwich or a burger? 
Should I quit swimming lessons? Do I want to wade into the river or take the path through the trees? Often, choices are rather basic, mostly personal preference, with no significant consequences one way or the other. But making those small choices is good preparation for when the bigger ones come along. Helping your child gain experience in making choices entails a lot of trust from you, certainly at first. You can develop this trust in a couple of ways. One is to examine your thoughts surrounding choices. Spend some time reflecting on whether the same choice is necessarily right for everyone. Remember, your child is not just an extension of you. It's not hard to imagine that different choices in the same situation could work out well for different people, yet it's still pretty easy to fall into the trap of thinking that you know the best choice for another person a spouse, a friend, or especially a child you love and want the best for. A second way to develop trust is through experience. We'll talk about that in a minute. As part of pondering the idea of there being a range of suitable choices in similar situations, you will likely contemplate the inverse. If you believe your choice is the best choice, the only choice, where do you go from there? Is it helpful to manipulate others into seeing that your choice for them should be their choice as well? Thinking further, you may begin to realize your judgment of the situation is tied up in your personal history. You really can't know everything about someone else's thoughts and goals, their emotional landscape, their physical reality. While you have their best interests at heart, you can't know for sure what the best choice is for them. While developing this trust, it is important that you don't judge their choices, even implicitly. Real choice is lost if you even subtly manipulate them with a sigh or a certain look. Certainly discuss the options, but it's important that they feel free to follow their preference because people learn best from an experience when it is their own. If they are living someone else's choices, they are often learning something different. Can you recall a situation where this was true for you? Even as an adult, when you're told what to do, it is human nature to feel a twinge of rebellion, especially when you think there is a better choice. You may well do what you're told, but what you are likely thinking about and learning from is not the situation at hand, but rather your feelings towards the messenger, your boss, your coach, or your parent. As I mentioned earlier, the other way you can learn to trust your child is through experience. Each time your child makes a considered choice that works out, you gain some experience. Each time your child makes a considered choice that wasn't the choice you'd advise and it still works out, you gain even more experience and you trust a bit more. Then you see another choice work out and another. Then you see a choice that didn't work out so well and you notice your child incorporate that information into their next related decision. More learning in action. With experience, you become less fearful and more trusting of your child making their own choices. Eventually, you and your child work out a harmonious relationship around choices where your input is thoughtfully considered by your child and their decision is respectfully accepted by you. Learning from Living Kaylee runs to the sink to refill her teapot for the umpteenth time this afternoon. She giggles, my teddy bears are thirsty again. As you peel carrots, you reply, That's nice, Kaylee. Dinner will be ready soon. Don't forget, you have to clean up before we eat. 
20 minutes later, you tell her it's time to put her teddy bears away and come to the table for dinner. She cries. No, I still want to play with them. You remind her she agreed to put them away before dinner when you agreed to carry out her favorite stuffed bears. She sobs and pleads, but you hold firm to your agreement. She eventually joins the family at the dinner table, quietly picks at her food for a while, and asks to be excused. Building on the awareness that choices are often personal preference, not right or wrong, and that subverting another person's choices often derails their learning, let's look more closely at how children learn from living their choices. Most of the day-to-day decisions in a child's life may seem significant to the parent in the moment, but in the bigger picture of childhood, they are often inconsequential. To whom does it really matter if your child wears her favorite Halloween costume to the grocery store? In these moments, she has the opportunity to revel in the attention and delight of the other shoppers as they admire her princess gown, and to decide next time that she'd like a quiet trip and choose to forgo the costume. Or if she eats her favorite peanut butter sandwich for breakfast, lunch, and dinner this week. It gives her the time to discover when she's had her fill of peanut butter and would like to try something new. What if she sets up a tea party in the living room for her teddy bears and wants to keep it there to enjoy tea and dainty finger sandwiches for the next few days? After immersing herself in all the tea-related fun she can imagine, she eventually notices that she'd like a clean slate for her next creation. And she may well discover that a tidy room can be quite as exciting as a busy one. As the parent, you can take a moment to look at the bigger picture and realize that these are wonderful and exciting adventures to your child, more exciting to her than a clean living room would be to you. It's about giving the child the opportunity to discover these things on her timetable as they have meaning for her rather than on the parent's timetable where they don't have meaning and the connections aren't made. Let's take another look at my son's karate interest from the perspective of timing. Michael's interest in martial arts was evident for quite a while before he decided to try out classes at a dojo. When I first mentioned that he might enjoy karate classes, he replied noncommittally and at least a year passed before he asked to go. At the time I offered, we discussed it a bit and I left the choice to him. Seeing how much he enjoys going to the dojo now does not mean that his choice to wait was wrong, nor does it mean that I should have cajoled or convinced him to try it back then. It was not a missed opportunity. He was simply not ready. If I had pushed him to go earlier, he may have ended up enjoying himself and continuing, but he may also have been turned off the sport itself because even though he was interested, he would be going at my behest, not directly from his own desire to explore karate. In fact, the dojo is a wonderful example of pursuing an interest when a person is ready. There are beginner white belts of all ages, from age 4 to over 40. Experience in making the smaller choices in life while growing up has a number of wonderful benefits for children. They get to know and understand themselves well, their likes and dislikes, what they excel at and what they find challenging. They gain lots of experience in analyzing situations and choosing which path forward to take. And their parents are close by to talk to while analyzing situations, available to share their experiences and thoughts 
young adults aren't left to ponder whether their choices are truly theirs or are in reaction to their parents' control. For parents, one of the significant advantages to allowing your children to make their own choices is that you are close by and easily available to provide whatever support and feedback your children might be looking for. Contrast that with dictating most of their childhood decisions until they move out on their own. This leaves them mostly alone to learn about themselves and figure out how they best function, just as they reach a point in their lives where the ramifications of their choices can be much greater. But keep in mind that this is all at an appropriate level for the child. If she just wants you to grab an outfit out of her drawer and help her get dressed, do that. If she just wants some quick food to munch on while busily building with her Lego, just bring her a plate with some food that you're pretty sure she'll like. Not all situations need analysis and defined choices. What's important is embracing the time and attention to discuss situations when the child sees options and is interested in choosing. Learning happens when there is interest. In terms of learning and building their web of knowledge, choosing which threads to pursue now and which to leave for later also helps children build experience and confidence. Without choice in this area, they aren't free to explore what they are most interested in, which is where the best learning is found. And if that thread they decide not to pursue last month comes up again this month related to something else, they begin to see that it might be a useful bit of information to have or skill to pick up and may soon choose to give it their attention. Notice a lot of these examples are not directly related to more academic learning. That should become less of a surprise as you ponder unschooling or learning through living. A person doesn't typically think in terms of academic subjects outside of school. From the perspective of learning, these more academic topics and skills are intertwined in life, not separated out, as we discussed in Idea 2. When making choices, it's not, should I learn math or English today? But maybe, do I want to work on programming that character interaction or write that game review this morning? Remember, the best learning, learning that is understood and remembered, is in the living. Let's look for a moment at those who grew up being taught to accept their parents' choices as best. Not only do they have minimal experience in analyzing situations, they have likely learned not to trust themselves. For example, if Samantha had had more experience with understanding herself and making choices, she may have realized that the law was really her father's dream before applying to law school. With big career-related choices, is a society-respected career, one many parents dream of for their children, right for everyone? Maybe being a trial lawyer is a great choice for Ellen, who loves to delve into conflicts in search of fine details and enjoys public speaking, but not for Samantha, who went to law school because it was expected of her, even though she really excels at web design. Her law firm now has a great website. Soon, Samantha is designing sites on the side for other clients and eventually sets up her own design shop. Are Ellen's and Samantha's choices right or wrong? Neither, just different. But it may have been nice for Samantha if she'd realized this earlier and didn't drag herself through the years and expense of law school. Still, it's hard to classify Samantha's law school attendance as definitively wrong. It was more of a detour on her journey. 
As she got older, she realized that being a lawyer was not interesting or fulfilling for her, but it was really just a different path, albeit a longer one, to the person she is today. But the sooner she discovers this about herself, the sooner her life is more enjoyable. A person makes fewer detours as an adult if given the time and opportunities during childhood to really understand themselves, how they tick, and to incorporate that knowledge into their decision-making when evaluating choices. Also, seeing how their perspective and goals change over time, especially during the teen years, helps them more easily understand and accept their changes of perspective and goals during adulthood, seeing them not as failures, but as part of living. They are gaining real-life experience. Quitting Activities Choosing to quit an activity is as much a learning experience as starting it. Think about that for a moment. Six-year-old Adam loves watching the Olympic swimmers in action and animatedly expresses an interest in doing that. You recommend swimming lessons. He thinks that sounds like fun, so you register him for the next cycle of lessons at the local indoor pool. He excitedly gets dressed and packs up his bathing suit and towel on the day of his first lesson and joins his class on the pool deck, smiling at the teacher. Then he spends most of the class sitting at the edge of the pool as the teacher takes them one at a time into the water for a couple of minutes, then back to the edge. He's disappointed at the end of the class, wishing he spent more time actually in the water. You talk with him about it, acknowledge his disenchantment, and mention that maybe the first week is more about getting organized and that next week he'll get more water time. He is not quite as excited the next week as you gather his stuff and drive him back to the pool. He joins his class on deck, but soon sees that the second week is more of the same. When you get home, he says he doesn't want to go back to that silly swimming class. It's not fun. This situation is not much fun for Adam, and there isn't much learning about swimming going on either. In fact, if the environment for learning is negative, it often casts a pall over the topic itself. If you insist that he continue attending, he soon may actively begin to dislike swimming, even though it's mostly this particular lesson environment that he is unhappy with. What is your goal here? To help Adam explore swimming? If so, and the swimming lessons aren't meeting that goal, then quitting seems to be a logical solution. Instead, you could try public swim times where you and he can play in the water the whole time instead of sitting at the edge. Maybe consider private lessons where he'd spend the majority of his time in the water, not just short intervals. The point is, if your goal is to help your child explore an interest and that goal isn't being met, Don't hesitate to move on. Not only does he continue learning about his interest, swimming, you both gain experience in finding the kind of learning environments that best fit him. Or are you tempted to say that at this point your goal has become teaching Adam to fulfill his commitments? That he wanted to take this set of swimming lessons so he should finish them all and then he can decide not to take more. First, you risk turning him off swimming or whatever the interest altogether for the foreseeable future. Is that worth it? And second, is it really a failure to quit something? Why? Is it a failure that your child discovers he isn't that interested in pursuing the activity after all? Or that this particular environment doesn't work well for him? Think about it. 
Is there really a good, bad, or success-failure judgment to be made when pursuing activities? Isn't it more about exploring topics and environments to see which fit best individually? Are you worried your child won't take on challenges if not pressed? When the goal is truly important to them, children will doggedly pursue it, even through many challenging moments. Remember the determination when your child learned how to walk? That wasn't easy. Take a moment to think of something your child was or is still interested in. Pokemon, skateboarding, dancing, dinosaurs. Remember how their face lit up as they dove into it? Their bubbling excitement when they talked about it? Even when they had a hard time beating the league champion or mastering their first skateboard ollie or remembering that hip-hop dance combination or were struggling to pronounce pachycephalosaur. Those were definitely challenging moments, but their goal was important to them. They were so resolute and kept at it. As a parent, you don't need to teach this type of commitment by requiring it in everything they do. Instead, help them find things that they enjoy so much that their dedication and learning flows naturally. The key is exploring the world through their interests to discover what is truly important to them. Children who have the freedom to explore a variety of things and discard them when they no longer make sense do not feel like failures when they choose to drop something. Instead, they see it as another experience from which to learn a bit about something and a lot about themselves. This is a much better attitude than the child who is forced to stay, being told to suck it up and stick it out, who begins to feel powerless and resentful. As an adult, this child is more likely, for example, to stay in an unhappy career so as not to look or feel like a failure, though he will definitely feel trapped. Learning through experience, both how to analyze situations and choose the next step, and also how to courageously change paths when that choice doesn't work out as envisioned, is valuable. These are indispensable skills to bring into adulthood. Philip Pullman illustrates this point wonderfully in the Amber Spyglass. What work have I got to do then, said Will, but went on at once. No, on second thought, don't tell me. I shall decide what I do. If you say my work is fighting or healing or exploring or whatever you might say, I'll always be thinking about it. And if I do end up doing that, I'll be resentful because it'll feel as if I didn't have a choice. And if I don't do it, I'll feel guilty because I should. Whatever I do, I will choose it, no one else. Then you have already taken the first steps towards wisdom, said Zapania. It sums up human nature so succinctly and describes what unschooling parents are trying to do. Give their children the freedom to determine their own life's journey. And through each choice made and outcome lived, unschooled children gain experience with making choices and in turn learn more about the world and themselves. I hope you found this episode helpful on your unschooling journey. And be sure to check out the wonderful archive of earlier podcast episodes. The conversations never go out of date. And you can find more information about my books, my Patreon community, and the Childhood Redefined Unschooling Summit at my website, livingjoyfully.ca. Have a great day.